Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we were going to move into the realm of literature, and I want to talk about realism a little bit. Uh, last time we talked in literature, we were talking about the Victorians, uh, and that was the direction that the English writers went after the Romantic period. Um, the American and the French writers moved in a little bit different direction, as well as the Russians. They moved all they all moved into what's known as realism. But before I tackle realism, I want to backtrack a little bit to a writer who is generally considered a transcendentalist and, and considered uh, more in the time period of the Romantics than he would be of the uh, realists. Um, Henry David Thoreau, uh, with his writings, especially his nature writings, is very much an anticipation of what realism would become. If you look at his work, Walden, there are large sections in there where he describes in great detail, um, you know, things about his cabin, things about the things he sees in nature, um, uh, observations of, you know, different uh, plants, different natural occurrences, and even spends a lot of time breaking down his budget, telling you how much he spent on food and supplies and all of these things. So a lot of his writings are very much kind of uh, foreshadowing what would come in realism. Now, this is kind of points out one of the difficulties that come about when you try to classify a writer as being all of one time period or another. Um, writers tend to not fit completely into any one literary period. Uh, for every work that you find that does fit into that period, if you do a little digging, you'll find a bunch of other works that don't fit into that period. They'll either be things that are reminiscent of earlier periods of literature, or they might be things that seem to foreshadow what's to come in literature. So the um, the way that literature is usually taught with breaking things into sharply divided time periods, sharply divided eras is really something that falls apart and it's and it's really mainly done for introductory purposes and to give you kind of an overall picture which is which is what I'm doing here um but as we you know go through these uh time periods more and go through these writers a little more you'll start to see that this concept doesn't completely hold up and you can pull a piece of writing out of one time period and look at parts of it and and, you know, think that, well, this is actually part of a different time period. And that's because writing and writers uh, are not static. And these people don't, you know, start their career at the beginning of one era and end it at the end of that era. In fact, many of the writers, if you look at them, are now starting to be talked about in more than one era. Uh, Walt Whitman, for example, is generally was generally taught as a romantic writer, um, but when you read his poetry from the Civil War and after that, which is firmly in the realism period, uh, he has a lot of the elements of realism as well. A lot of his description changes. You know, his poems before the Civil War were much more uh, open-hearted, I guess you could say, and, you know, talking about almost endless possibilities and endless expanses. Um, and... The Civil War definitely changes him, as it does, you know, most of the people in the United States. It changes them out of, shocks them out of those romantic ideals and kind of 
pushes them more into wanting more realistic writing. Um, one of the, some of the works that come about in the realism period are things like Occurrence at Owl Creek by Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Bierce is generally considered one of the founding members of American realism. He wrote uh, lots of uh, short stories. He wrote poetry. He wrote for journals. He, he wrote a lot of uh, stuff. He also ended up disappearing mis mysteriously when he was about 71, and there's always been, you know, theories about what happened to him. Uh, he disappeared in Mexico or around Mexico. Uh, no one knows if he was executed, if he went off somewhere and died. If, you know, no one knows what happened to him. He's sort of one of these people that, you know, creates this, uh, his real life creates this uh, as big a mystery as anything he wrote. But in Occurrence at Owl Creek, you have a story of a Confederate soldier who's been turned in by a Union spy. And he's about to be um, executed by hanging off of a bridge. And the story, as it progresses, he's actually you know, pushed off. And as he hits the bottom of the rope, the rope snaps and he, you know, is able to swim away. And it, it talks about several days in his, you know, in his journey. And some of it gets a little bit surrealistic. And this actually starts to anticipate, again, some of the things you're going to see in uh, modernism and in postmodernism. But as he gets almost home, because he's making his way back home to his farm, uh, you know, he has a sharp blow, feels a sharp blow on the back of the neck and a flash of light. And then it basically describes the fact that he is, you know, hanging from the bridge. Um, so all of this two days, two, three days worth of adventures that is elaborately detailed are supposed to be what happens in the last few seconds of his life between the time he's pushed off the bridge and you know the time that he hits the bottom of the rope and it snaps his neck so this sort of surrealistic uh, stretching out of time is is very much something that you would see in later works it, it's been done in earlier works as well but it's something that influences a lot 20th century works um, but the details of the story are very much realistic you know there's no uh uh grand uh adventure there's no grand awakening there's no grand enlightenment that's coming from this it's a straightforward you know a, a person's desperate flee in their you know fleeing in their mind from their reality and this is one of the things that the realists really put into their work because because of the circumstances, because of the Civil War and other circumstances, the beginnings of industrialization in the United States, uh, people's focus shifts away from the fantastic and tries to get more to day-to-day -day living and tries to get more into what are other people like. And I've talked about a little bit in the past about uh, Mark Twain, and a lot of his books are written in dialect which is another big part of realism. Um, when you write a story in a particular area, people should have the right dialect for that area. And this is very much something that gets carried beyond realism into what we have today. Um, 
the some of the other writers of realism. Um, I've even seen people as late as John Steinbeck uh, put in as realist writers, and John Steinbeck's writing in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so chronologically, he would be much later. I've seen um, listed under the realists people like Upton Sinclair, which we talked about Upton Sinclair's Jungle uh, a little bit in a in a early episode. Um, so the the idea of being able to tie this down neatly to a time period is not something that you can really do, but you can start to see a lot of the major traits. Um, you do see a shift in who are the main characters. Um, if you think about the characters in Owl Creek, the characters in uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, the characters in you know different works of this time period, uh, and in Sinclair's works and in um, Steinbeck's works in the 20th century, uh, the emphasis has shifted even further down. Um, remember the Romantics shifted the uh, main characters from lords and ladies and kings and queens and gods and goddesses down to more middle class. But this is more upper middle class that the Romantics are are making main characters. More of the rising new wealthy. These are the people that are the characters often in the Romantic stories. Um, they're not the poorer people. And this shift in realism to going down to even the lower classes we saw in the Victorian literature, you know, discussions about the poor and the orphans and, you know, uh, women in factories, children in factories. This emphasis moving downward um, reflects not only new social consciousness in different countries, but it also shows that the audience has once again changed and expanded. Because as you move into the late 1800s and then into the 20th century, into the 1900s, you have books becoming even more um, readily available. You have education expanding so that even the children of the poor are still getting what amounts to a third or fourth grade education. Because of the complexity of society changing, because of things becoming more uh, involved with machinery, uh, steam engines, factories, things like that, you have a need for a more educated working class. Even the working poor have to have a little bit more education. And so they start to have a little more ability to read. And so as this happens, there is again a shift where these people start to be talked about more, where they start to be characters more, both from the fact that they're bringing social awareness, but also from the fact that these people are actually now able to read books. They've expanded the audience. So one of the traditions that, as you can see, we're talking about literature that's been happening has been a gradual expansion of who can read. You know, at, at, at the uh, earlier periods in literature, the people who could read were the, you know, clergy of the church, and not even all of them could read. There were even members of the church, uh, high-ranking members of the church, who couldn't read. Um, but literacy was pretty much uh, restrained to a very high class. Even a lot of the 
aristocracy and the nobility um, were unable to read. Some could, some couldn't. And as society changes, as it becomes more complex, as you know, more groups start playing more important roles, uh, you can see that the level of class uh, starts to be reflected in the things that are written. Now I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the French writers of realism, um, and that writer is uh, Gustave Flaubert uh, in his book Madame Bovary, which is considered one of the um, uh, influential books in realism, especially in French realism. Now obviously this is a translated uh, version I'm using for uh, this discussion. Uh, the translation, oh, I don't see the translator's name. I shall have to amend the translator's name. I don't see it off the top of my head. But this is a translated version into English. But they kept it pretty true to the original because I have also read it in French. Um, I want to go into a paragraph, a couple paragraphs on page 10, just to give you a little bit of, of a sense of what uh, realism would look like, both in French literature and in American literature. Uh, the paragraph starts out, It was a substantial-looking farm. In the stables, over the top of the open doors, one could see great cart horses quietly feeding from new racks. Right along the outbuildings extended a large dung hill, from which manure liquid oozed, while amidst fowls and turkeys five or six peacocks, a luxury uh, in farmyards, were uh, were uh, foraging on top of it, and sheepfold was long, the barn high, the walls smooth as your hand. Under the cart shed were two large carts and four plows with their whips, shafts and harnesses complete, whose trappings of blue wool were getting soiled um, by the fine dust that fell from the granaries. And going down into the next, when he goes into the house, a young woman in a blue merino dress with three flouses came to the threshold of the door and received Monsieur Bovary, whom she led to the kitchen, where a large fire was blazing. The servant's breakfast was boiling beside it in small pots of all sizes. Some damp clothes were lying inside the chimney corner. The shovels, the shovel, tongs, and nuzzle of the uh, nozzle of the bellows, all of colossal size, shone like polished steel, while along the wall hung, main, hung many pots and pans in which the clear frame of the hearth, mingling with the first rays of sun coming through the window, was mirrored fitfully. So you see a very different style. Um, you see a different approach to detail. You know, in the earlier literatures, if you had details, it would be maybe the details of a knight's armor or of his horse or of his weapons, or it would be the details of a castle or, you know, the details of some mansion. Um, these are the details of a farmhouse. And, and this, again, is, is very specific details. And, and part of realism is they wanted to really bring the reader into the way other people lived. So if someone didn't know what all of these things were, they could always, you know, find out what they were because they wanted to actually be able to visualize it. How were these people really living? So a lot of times you get these very long descriptions. Now for the modern readers, this tends to be something that is difficult for the modern reader to get through because we are very used to stories 
especially in popular fiction, where the action better be off and running right from page one, or a lot of people are going to stop reading. But you have to sort of pull yourself out of uh, 21st century thinking and 21st century way of looking at the world. Um, you know, think about this as, uh, as an earlier version of uh, high-definition television, high-definition movies, surround sound. You know, we're used to these things being audio and visual in the modern world. These people didn't have movies. They didn't have television. They didn't even have radio. So these vivid details um, would have been very appealing, uh, much the same way when you go to a movie, you want a very clear picture. You want to be able to see all kinds of things visually. Well, realism is sort of the start of that, uh, but it's the start of it in print. And as technology always works, things usually start in one technology and then are advanced to another type of technology. So the idea of, I want to feel like I'm immersed in this room, the same way you would think about being immersed in a movie scene. Uh, this is very much a part of realism. Now, in realism, there's also a philosophical shift um, from romanticism. And I talked about this a little bit in an earlier episode. In romanticism, there's sort of an idea of nature being intimately tied to the individual. You know, if a person is sad, it's raining and gloomy outside. If they're happy, the sun is shining and the birds are singing. Well, as we're moving into industrialization, as we're moving, you know, we have things like the Civil War, as we have things like, you know, this, this kind of new awareness of different people in different situations, there were also some changes in science that started to change the way people viewed the world. And one of the mistakes in literature or philosophy or any other discipline really is to is to look at it in isolation and think other things don't affect it. Um, other things very much affect what's going on in literature, in philosophy, in all of the arts. Because these people writing and, and thinking these thoughts are not living in a vacuum. Um, they don't live in some cave on you know, a deserted island where they don't have any contact with the rest of the world. Um, changes in technology, changes in science, changes in culture, these things are all reflected in literature and in philosophy. And one of the things that drew me to study both of those disciplines and study history was from early on I started to see that if you only think about something in, in the context of let's say, literature from the perspective of literature, you don't really understand what's going on and why it's going on. So one of the historical contexts that you need to bring in that also has a big influence on this is Darwin's Origin of Species, which is in the 1850s, just prior to the realism period. This has a very profound effect on the way people see the world and the way they see their place in nature. You know, prior to Darwin, for most of the world, the, the only explanations of where we came from were religious explanations. Uh, there weren't a lot of uh, ideas floating around for regular people about evolution. Now, the ideas of evolution were not invented by Darwin. 
uh, Darwin's grandfather, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, um, also wrote about evolution. There were people in ancient Greece uh, and other cultures that were writing things about evolution. So this was an idea that it existed for centuries, for thousands of years actually, uh, with thinkers and philosophers and and the sort of what you would call, think of as the elite educated people, um, the ones who had access to lots of books and lots of ideas. But these were not ideas that everyone had access to. The common people only had access to whatever their religion told them. Well, this sets up with Darwin an alternative explanation of where we came from. Now, whether people like Darwin, hate Darwin, uh, think he was right, think he was completely full of it, uh, this is all irrelevant because this changes the way people see the world. And his influence really can't be denied because for the first time it starts to bring in, well, maybe there wasn't, uh, it wasn't the way it was described in, you know, the religious texts. Uh, for the first time, there is a, a full explanation of uh, where we may have come from. And Darwin's Origin of Species is extremely popular. It's a, it's a, it's a bestseller. I mean, it, libraries have huge waiting lists for people to borrow the book, and they're basically selling out the copies as quickly as they can print them. So this fundamentally changes the way people view their place in the universe. And in realism, there's a shift towards seeing nature as something that is more neutral towards humans. Um, you know, nature is neither for us nor against us, uh, we're just in it. Um, and if you think about this, this makes sense. Because just because you're sad doesn't mean it's going to rain outside. You know, you may be having the worst day of your life and the birds might be singing and the sun is shining and, you know, the light is sparkling off the river. Um, and it has no connection to your inner feelings. Or you could be having the best day of your life and it's you know, gloomy outside and raining and cold and, uh, you know, foggy and just a terrible day outside, but you're having a wonderful day. So the, there starts to be this idea of nature as being something that is more neutral. And this is very different from the Romantics who saw nature as this thing that inspires, this thing that moves us forward, this thing that we're intimately connected to. Now this also... If, if you think about this, is going to cause a lot of distress for a lot of people. It's going to bring up a lot of uncomfortable things because now we sort of start to have this feeling underneath that maybe we're just one thing among everything else just hanging out and there's nothing special about us and there's nothing, um, you know, planned out for us that we got here by, you know, evolution and that, you know, maybe someday we'll evolve into something else and won't even be human anymore. So it does make fundamental shifts in the way people think and realism reflects that because the thing that most humans hate is not knowing, is having uncertainty. And so if the religious answers are no longer 
filling the void, if you if you if it's not answering the questions for you, there does tend to be a shift towards, well, maybe let's take a better look at the world around us and see what we can figure out. And this doesn't mean that with Darwin, and it still hasn't happened even through today, that people have completely abandoned religion. There are people who have, um, you know, firmly uh, affirmed that evolution happened, but they also believe in God. They just reconcile the two by, well, God caused it to happen. So it didn't mean that religion was completely thrown to the side and everybody automatically became an atheist. Far from it. It just meant there was now a shift and people's view of the world got more complicated. And when your view gets more complicated, you have to dig in a little more. And so you do have this in in realism, an attempt that started even in uh, Thoreau with his naturalism that, you know, People want to take a better look at the world and, you know, see how much of it they can match up with their religious beliefs, with the new beliefs that are coming along. Okay, uh, next time we do literature, I do want to shift into naturalism. Uh, Naturalism and realism is a really uh, hazy line. There's a lot of people who want to just say, no, it's just all realism Uh, And then there's a lot of dispute about where the line is drawn between the two. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to focus on what I consider to be the real difference between the two, which is the feeling about nature and the approach to nature. So I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. And I hope to talk to all of you again soon.